couple items I'd share with you. First of all, I was very impressed that you all were able to clap along to that song. Very impressed. A uh, couple things I'd mention. Um, next Sunday, the 29th, uh, was potentially going to be uh, the first Sunday. Oh, but before that, thank you. It's unofficially, yesterday was the largest um, volunteer team we've ever had for a cleanup Saturday. So thank you. I think we should clap. That's unofficially, I don't know for sure, but I have under good authority that perhaps that was the largest team we've ever had. And what I would love for you to do, Lakewood, is take that same energy to serve on a cleanup day and apply it to serving here in the church. Now, listen, I have done 50% of the training. We did it. We, we, you all can do this. You can hit a mouse or a space bar. Next Sunday, potentially, was going to be the first Sunday in recent history in which there were no slides available. Not because there's something wrong with the technology, not because we couldn't think of clever slides to put up on a screen, because we couldn't find someone to come in and push spacebar or click on a mouse. Well, yesterday, thankfully, we had an older gentleman at our men's breakfast uh, volunteer to do it next Sunday. But brothers and sisters, you're 50% of the way trained, please. Be willing to come and serve even on our audio or visual team. Uh, the second thing I would give you by way of update is, many of you know, we've been praying that God would kindly provide a humble man to come and serve us as a pastor of discipleship and music. We continue to receive resumes and going through the process of prayerfully asking, Lord, send us the right man. Send us a humble man. Send us someone that would come and serve our body faithfully. So please, continue to pray for the search team. Pray for the hearts of those that would come and serve. Well, it is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. We find ourselves this morning in a letter that deals specifically with suffering. Is there suffering around you and in your life? Well, whether it is the suffering and evil of a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, the suffering of cancer, financial difficulty, marital strife or other fractured relationships, work difficulty, physical ailments, we all know, we all know a measure of suffering in this life. And so did the Apostle Peter and those who received the letter that we call 1 Peter. His readers were suffering under an unjust government and experiencing the very real and sharp suffering of losing their lives because of their faith. What are we to do with suffering? What is our response to suffering? What is the remedy to suffering? How can faithful followers of Christ be helped and strengthened when the world around them, when our world, seems to be crumbling. It may seem odd to our 21st century American ears, but Peter points his suffering readers to the realities of baptism. So I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures, if you haven't already, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, will be in verses 18 through 22. And our sermon title this morning is, The Baptized Church. 
We continue to look at the character of the church in this series by looking at exegetical portraits throughout the New Testament and asking this question. What should be the DNA of the church at large in Lakewood specifically? My main point, the main idea of our passage today is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ are strengthened by baptism. In the early church, baptism had a great measure of significance in the life of a faithful follower of Christ. And we heard it from Dave last week as he preached on Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Baptism was and is intimately connected to the mission of the church. It doesn't earn you forgiveness, and it's not an add-on to the Christian life either. It's foundational. Every disciple, every faithful follower is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus requires it. It's not the next step of the Christian life. It's the command to believers as they begin their Christian lives, a life of faith. But what exactly is the connection between baptism and suffering? More specifically, how does our baptism strengthen us when we do suffer? Please read with me our passage. I'll start in verse 13 of chapter 3, and I'll go all the way through 22. God's Word says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter graciously provides us three ways baptism and what it represents strengthens us as we faithfully follow Jesus. Well, look carefully with me in our text in verses 18 through 22. And this is 
uh, by most scholars' opinion, one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. And this week, I just sat in my office going, what am I doing? Why? There are so much easier passages that deal with baptism than this one. And fathers, I don't know what your dinner conversation looks like with your family. I imagine you tell jokes and make your kids smile. Well, in my home, I ask deep theological questions at the dinner table. Uh, Dad is maybe more serious, more seriously minded than he should be. So I read this passage to my children, and they suggested to me that I break my leg, or it was, I think, implied that I fake my own death to do anything, to do anything I could from getting out of having to preach this difficult text. Well, I did not wisely take their advice, so here we are. Peter gives us three ways baptism and what it represents strengthens us. First, we are strengthened by Christ's suffering. Now, I get this directly from verse 18. That little word for at the beginning, it connects us to the prior verses we already read. Verses that tell us it is right to suffer for doing good, for honoring and living for Christ as a faithful follower. For or because, verse 18, because Christ also suffered and died. His suffering was different from our, the text says. He is righteous, blameless, the God-man with no sin who suffered in the place of the unrighteous. He substituted himself in our place on the cross to suffer the penalty that we deserve for our sin, our rebellion, our waywardness toward God. In order that, verse 18 continues, that we might be brought to God. This, my friends, is what we call the gospel. The good news of Jesus that declares that the triune God of the universe planned, moved, and worked in such a way that broken, flawed, hurting humanity could be brought to intimacy and relationship with him. And did you notice that word once in verse 18? His bringing broken, sinful people to God for healing and restoration was accomplished in the one act of his dying on the cross. So whether you are here and you are considering Christianity or you have been a faithful follower your whole life, Christ's work and suffering on your behalf was the one, the once and final act that your soul most desperately longs for and needs. Christ's work means that you don't have to sacrifice yourself on the altar of performance in this life. Jesus is enough. Jesus paid the cost. Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God. Jesus worked, suffered, and died so that we, you and I, don't have to earn our way to God. Now, why would Peter point this out to us and to his readers? When we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, feeling the sharp pain this world often brings, we are to look to Christ and his suffering. We just read that it is better to suffer when we do good following God's will 
It is better to suffer because it puts the beauty of God on display when we trust him in the midst of that suffering. When we are gentle and even respectful to people around us who may not deserve it all the time. We're seemingly here encouraged at a minimum to do as one writer said. We are to readily embrace undeserved suffering because Christ also suffered in this way. If the aim of our life as a faithful follower of Christ is to glorify and to lift high the name of Jesus, then that includes when we hurt. We look to his suffering on our behalf. We look to his example. We look and marvel at the one who suffered unjustly so that we could be brought to God. Isn't he glorious? It's that glory and beauty that will enable you and I to suffer well and to follow our Savior's faithful example. When you suffer this week and in the weeks to come, look to his suffering and be encouraged. And listen, we do ourselves no favor in the church when we show up on a Sunday morning. You wear the cute clothes. You look great, by the way. You put on the smile, and we act as if there is no fear, doubt, circumstance, and pain in our life. (laughs) How are you? I'm fine. It's all fine. How's the wife? She's fine. That serves no one well. Because for those of you who have not suffered yet, it's coming. When you trust in Christ, it is not all rainbows and butterflies. We still live in a broken world, and many of you bear the marks of suffering in your life. And as we said, as we opened this service, we don't pretend and leave the world behind us as we come into a service like this. No, we bring it with us. We bring that suffering to Christ and his people. We sing of his glory in the midst of pain as difficult as it is, often with tears in our eyes. So when we suffer, we look to his suffering. We look to his example. We look to what he's done for us eternally on that cross. Well, next, Peter points us to the fact that we are not just strengthened by his suffering, but we're strengthened by his work, by his work for us. I get this Directly from verses 19 and 21 through 21, these are the hairy verses in our passage. See, our strengthening while we suffer here is most directly connected to Christ's work in the symbol of baptism. Peter directs our attention to a well-known Old Testament historical narrative found in Genesis 6 in a flood. A flood that some of your translations read in verse 21 as the antitype, or the picture, or the symbol, or the correspondence to the sacrament or ordinance of baptism. So read with me again the end of verse of 18, and we'll go through 20. The end of 18 finishes this way. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, there are a few interpretations of these verses, and I'll save the explanation of all of them until we go through the letter of 1 Peter someday. But here this morning, allow me to share the most common understanding among scholars, pastors, not just now, but through church history. And I'll confess, this is where I also land, but there are other credible conclusions. So it flows like this. The end of verse 18, that phrase, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is not a reference to some disembodied state after Jesus had died and before he rose again. But rather, being put to death and made alive is simply a reference to his literal, physical, sacrificial death on the cross and his literal, physical resurrection by the power of the Spirit of God three days later. He was put to death. He was made alive. He died, he was buried, and he resurrected. So after his death and resurrection, verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The word spirits throughout the scriptures refers to demons and fallen angels unless explicitly qualified as humans, which our text does not. So Jesus went to their imprisoned state, not to hell, not to the place of torment that is being prepared for them, but perhaps to the place of the dead, commonly referred to as Sheol in the Old Testament scriptures. The resurrected Jesus went to these imprisoned spirits and proclaimed or preached. Proclaimed and preached what? Well, this isn't some nod toward fallen spirits and angels having a second chance to hear the gospel and going to heaven. I believe it was the old 16th century monk and theologian, the reformer Martin Luther, who explained it this way. Jesus went and snubbed his nose at the spirits. Luther always has a funny way of saying things. In other words, Jesus' proclamation, his preaching to them, was his victory over sin and death. He appeared before them proclaiming his risen state his accomplished work on the cross, and his conquering of dark, wicked forces of Satan, those evil spirits, and evilness itself. Well, verse 20, these spirits were imprisoned. They found themselves at the receiving end of Jesus' proclamation of his victory over them because of this, their disobedience, the text says. Their contribution to the temptation and evil that was found in the heart of man. So, as you may be aware, the historical narrative of this account is God sending a flood to bring judgment on these spirits, on a wayward and rebellious humanity. And as our text reads, Noah and his family obeyed, trusted, feared, and walked with God. They were safely brought through the waters. Now, the sea, the waters, throughout the scriptures are seen as a very dangerous thing. Not just in the flood, but in the prophets, and especially the Psalms, the waters represent judgment, chaos, and the need for rescue. Let me prove it to you. Psalm 144. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver and rescue me. 
from the mighty waters. Psalm 69, rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodgates engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. I think you get the point. So read the first part of verse 21 again. Baptism, which corresponds or pictures this. Baptism corresponds, pictures, symbolizes what exactly? Verse 20. Baptism points to Noah's family being brought through the waters of judgment and chaos, safely protected by the ark. Baptism, Peter states, is the symbol or the picture of rescue from judgment. It saves you. It doesn't save you eternally by wiping away dirt or filth of sin, verse 21 says. It saves you because this is the physical, tangible expression of Christ's work for you, in you, Him saving you from the waters of judgment as you trust and cling to Him. Baptism is the act that demonstrates your response, your pledge, your clear conscience towards God. Now, why do you have a clear conscience towards God in baptism? Because of your work? Because of your prayers? Because you attended church? Oh, because you put a couple bucks in the offering box in the back? No. You have a clear conscience before God in your baptism because of the work of Christ. As the end of verse 21 reads, it is through, it is effective through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his work for you, which is only applied to us by faith and faith alone. So think for a moment, Jesus on the boat in that stormy night with his disciples. They were in dangerous waters of the sea. Chaos. The boat was being swamped by waves. They scream out for help. And Matthew 8 reads this. Then he, Jesus, rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea of judgment obey him? Do you see? Jesus is the glorious one who saves us from the waters. Baptism is the symbolic measurement, the display that faithful followers of Christ join in as they are immersed, baptized under the waters, signifying a death. A death to sin. A death to an old life. As Romans 6 tells us, we are baptized and connected to, in a very supernatural way, the death of Christ. We go under those waters in baptism to die. And when we arise out of those waters, we are brought through the sea of judgment. We are rescued by a better ark than Noah. As Paul continues in Romans 6, we are united with Jesus in a resurrection like his. The resurrection of Christ and his work has resurrected us in our hearts. We have new life, 
a new heart, and we are forgiven. We are saved. Now, why is Peter pointing us to this? Because when we suffer, we are strengthened by Christ's work. His death and resurrection, his proclamation over evil, his rescue and saving work of our hearts is depicted in the waters of baptism. It encourages us in the storms, the choppy waters of this life. So Lakewood, are you suffering as you give yourself over to sin again and again? Do you feel the pain of ridicule or fractured relationships? Have the circumstances of this life not met your expectations? Young or old, do you have physical ailments that make you long for rest? Do you deeply hurt because of the loss and the suffering of losing someone you love? Are you misunderstood, ill-treated, and feeling abandoned? Look to the realities of baptism. Brothers and sisters, if you are a faithful follower of Christ, look to and be strengthened by the work of Christ. Look to what your baptism represents. Consider afresh what he has done for your soul. Think and set your heart. Set your heart on the celestial city, the eternal home, the new heavens, the new life that you have now and that fully awaits you one day, fully and truly in his presence. If you are here and considering Christianity or you have not followed the Lord's command to be baptized and immersed in the waters, symbolizing his rescue and work of you, I invite you. I urge you, I plead with you to consider that you need to die. You need to die to self, this world, sin and rebellion, and go under those waters. But you need not only that. You need to be brought up out of those waters. You need to be saved by the better ark, Jesus you need the physical, tangible symbol that this baptism represents. Well, lastly here in conclusion, we're not only strengthened and encouraged in the suffering of Christ and the work of Christ, but also, lastly, in the authority of Christ. Look at verse 22 again. This resurrected Jesus, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Jesus, the God-man, sits on the throne currently, and he reigns over the hearts of his people. He resides in heavenly places in full authority. And we read angels, authorities, powers being subject to him. But those aren't the only things that are subject to the authoritative Christ. Lakewood is subject to him. This is his church. 
This country is subject to him. We need not be frantic. He's in control. Your cancer or illness is subject to him. Your imperfect family life is subject to him. Your preferences and opinions are subject to him. Our circumstances are subject to him. And our hearts are subject to him as faithful followers. The authority of Christ means that we can look at this world, even our sufferings, and endure with joy and confidence because we, as his faithful followers, are strengthened by baptism. So we look back at our baptism. We look at a baptism that's going to be taking place here in a moment. We look to the reality of even future baptisms. Many of you need to consider and turn to Christ and trust in him. Many of you have not been baptized and you need to. Because even as I was telling the young lady, Casey, who's about to be baptized, whenever we see a public baptism, you know it's not for that individual, right? Baptism is never done in a secret bathtub behind a closed door. But it's always done in community. Because as Peter says, visible proclamations, tangible reminders of the God's rescuing work is seen as we together witness a young lady go under the waters and die. Don't worry, Casey, we're bringing you back up after. Baptism serves you. It's not about you when you get baptized. It's about, it's, it's about the church. It's about your service to the church. So when we look at baptism, our own currently or the future ones that God would graciously give us, we are fortified, reinforced, and equipped in the sufferings of this life. Not by our own might, but as we look to Christ's suffering, his work, and his authority.